everybody. Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Ashley and Danny. And today on our second edition of People That Are Smarter Than Us, we have another uh, special guest, Larry. And uh, Larry, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Larry Zanoff. I'm the Assistant Manager at Independent Studio Services uh, Weapons Department and Lead Armorer. Uh, we do a lot of on-set uh, type work with firearms in the film and television industry. We also do some uh, law enforcement and military training. And uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being a part of uh, the the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, so obviously you've done a lot of work for a movie and TV with various firearms. And what's my first question is, what is like your favorite? Wait, wait, I want to interrupt okay. because I haven't had my coffee yet. I just want to point out Larry's, you know, greatest crowning achievement, which is being featured in the Cody Firearms Museum. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, forget the other uh, stuff. That's he's, the important one. Yeah. Since he's the co-host of Hollywood Weapons, which you can check out on Netflix. Uh, it's the only way that I can see it. Sorry, Larry. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, we have uh, that. We have pieces of Hollywood weapons playing in our science gallery. So Larry is, if you want to get more Larry, you can see him in the Cody Firearms Museum. Yeah, that's actually, you know, a good point, Ashley. Uh, season four of Hollywood Weapons premieres today, actually, on the Outdoor Channel. And uh, we've always been very proud and very happy that we're being kind of displayed at the Cody Firearms Museum, not just because it's kind of cool advertisement for the show, but uh, because you have us, I think, in your educational section, which is one of yeah. the things that we like, is we help spread a little bit of knowledge and everything through the show. So, uh, Even though Terry's on the show, right? Sorry? Is it even though Terry's on the show? It's in the educational section. I'm sorry, who was that that you were, who else is on the show? <laughs> other guy, yeah, yeah, That yeah, other yeah. guy that um, is basically the same name as you, yeah. Terry and Larry. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we, we enjoy you know, very much and we're very honored to uh, have a display at, at Cody. So uh, anyone who's a fan of the show should go to Cody and anyone who's a fan of Cody should watch our show. Uh, that's exactly Exactly, true. it's actually a really good show. I am endorsing it, um, and I'm not the biggest fan of, like, programming on the Outdoor Channel, except for gun stories. <laughs> um, but, no, Hollywood Weapons is actually a ton of fun, and one of the more fun parts of the renovation was watching episodes of Hollywood Weapons so that we could um, figure out which clips we wanted to use. And I think the scene with Terry and the snake uh, is one of my favorites. Not today, snake. Yeah. He does, he does a great job. Uh, uh, it's a fun show, but again, we like the fact that people can actually learn something um, from watching the show. And one of my favorite parts about the show, by the way, is how many of the, the fans we, we get emails and you know messages from that tell us that it's become like a family event. Parents sit down with their small children and like watching the show, uh, which I think is, is really, really cool. Hey, Camila, have you seen it? No, I haven't. <laughs> well, now you have something to binge watch on Netflix. <laughs> that's, that's the wrong answer. The answer should have been, yes, of course. I watch it all the time. I love that you, show. You actually just continually teach me. That's how this happens. <laughs> they just continually teach me about things. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Danny, sorry. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had to give a little... generic and boring. Um, 
but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's so? What's like your favorite gun that you've built for a show or movie? Wow, um, that's a tough one because we we have done so many. Um, I would have to say that as far as the challenge of building it and then the response that we got from the viewers, uh, the gun that morphed into Vera from Firefly uh, was, was probably one of my proudest favorite, you know, uh, things that we've done. Um, based on a Sega 12 shotgun, it's got a lot of pieces and parts kind of built onto it. And it's one of those, one of those guns that at least in the sci-fi world has become kind of like an icon, like a kind of like a dirty Harry gun. You might not be a gun person, but if you say dirty Harry gun, everybody knows what you're talking about. In the sci-fi world, I think Vera has become that kind of gun. My wife is going to love that answer. Oh, I talk about Firefly all the time. <laughs> Great show. Great show. So good. Uh, so I guess for the people, like the, all two of the people listening at home, Larry, why don't you uh, um, talk a little bit about like what type of guns, not specifically like makes models, but like are they real guns, fake guns, rubber guns? Like, you know, what's used for different circumstances in movies and television? Because I don't think a lot of people really knows, knows, uh, I should drink more coffee. I don't think a lot of people really know, you know, what characters are actually carrying, whether they're real or not, and how they function? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. And the thing to remember is that it's still a television show or a movie. It's not real. So basically, when you're watching something up on the screen, we're creating an illusion. If we do it right, it looks real, but it, it's still make-believe. It's an illusion. So when you're dealing with firearms, um, if you actual muzzle flash and shells ejecting and all that it's probably a real firearm that has been converted to use blanks and that doesn't stop it from still being a firearm legally it is still a real firearm we have to you know follow all the rules and all the regulations uh, but it's firing a blank if you see a detective let's say wandering around a police precinct and his jacket's open he's got a belt with, with a holster and a gun in it, that's probably a rubber or a replica. There's no reason to actually have the real gun on set if you're never drawing the gun or you're never firing the gun. Unless, of course, the actor, him or herself, won it there. Sometimes they like it. They like to feel the weight of the gun. It helps them, you know, in their method of acting. So by and large, when you see one gun on screen, it's probably actually part of a family of guns. Uh, we did one film, for instance, where there was one character with one gun throughout the entire movie, two and a half hours of one guy with a gun. There was actually six to 10 of those guns out on set every night because there were six real blanked ones. There was a couple of rubber ones. There was a few replica ones. There's specialty props that are made for when we do a stunt with the gun uh there's different levels of blanks and each gun has to be tuned to a different level and those are all things that have to happen in prep you can't just kind of swap things around at the last minute on set so there, there's always a lot more of a deeper background to things on set than than the 
public actually sees when the when the program comes out. Interesting. And I don't know if anybody's really seen, I mean, other than when we had rubber guns in the CFM um, that you guys supplied for our Glock exhibition, but I've been out to um, independent studio services in California and those rubber guns are like so realistic. It's, it's kind of unreal. <laughs> Again, it's an illusion. You know, we, we, we have technologies that we've developed for film and television to where, you know, on screen at least, it's, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between the rubber gun and the real gun if it's, if it's done correctly. And we, we kind of pride ourselves on doing it the best that we can. And uh, we've been pretty successful so far. So I have a question about like the decision-making process for like what guns you use. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in some shows you watch, you kind of like, you get this time period, you get all that and you kind of, the guns that show up are kind of what you expect. And then in others, especially in sci-fi, you know, you mentioned Firefly, you, you see some props that are guns that you might not expect, like guns built from something weird and obscure and historical or, or that. So is that up to you guys to decide as like the prop house or is that down to a director saying, I want to go for this certain look and then you think of a gun? Like how does that process work to end up where these guns that sort of seem, as for me, the viewers seem a little bit off the wall that, to end up in these shows? So we have this giant dartboard and we start the process <laughs> throwing a dart. You know? uh, no, actually there's, there's quite a bit of thought that goes into all these things. Um, one of the challenging parts about the television and film industry is how every single project is different and unique. And that could even be within a television series. Let's say each episode becomes, you know, unique unto itself. Uh, sometimes the script will actually call out a specific gun and then we're tied to that gun, you know, uh, and that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be because the writer likes that particular gun. It could be because historically that's the correct gun for the period. Uh, what happens a lot of times on set is, uh, especially with extras, not so much with lead actors, but with, with, you know, guest appearances and stuff. You might have an actor that cast the night before the filming. And so you've already decided, hey, I'm going to give this person this particular gun, you know, whatever it is. And then when the actor shows up, they're a taller actor than you expected. And the gun that you've picked up looks very small in their hand. And it doesn't quite, you know, match the, let's say, the assassin look that they were hoping for. And so it's kind of like, well, what else do you have? Oh, we have these over here. And it gets swapped out at the last minute. Um, other times there's, you know, mainly on feature films, there's lots of prep, there's screen tests, there's days where we just spend down on a sound stage with a variety of guns, taking photographs of the actors with different guns in their hands, and then the director or, you know, maybe the producer or the studio pick the ones that they like, or even the actor. You know, actors are having to do a lot of stuff, you know, in front of the camera. They've got dialogue that they have to remember they have to hit their marks correctly they might be involved in a stunt as well and then they also have to manipulate this gun in a way that makes them look like they're professionals and so some guns are easier to manipulate than others 
And they go, yeah, you know, that's, it's not fitting right in my hand. And so we come up with some other alternative. Uh, when we do sci-fi type stuff where we build pieces and parts or we call it prosthetics. When we put prosthetics onto a gun, uh, we try to start out with the base firearm being the most reliable one that we can find. Because one of the things you have to remember about firing blanks in the industry is these guns were never meant to fire blanks. We, we are, are kind of like altering and forcing them to do something that they were never designed to do. And oddly enough, we, we strive for like 100% reliability. You know, if you're a police officer, or if you're in the military and you're forced into a situation where you need to deploy your weapon and it malfunctions, you're trained to clear the jam and continue on with the fight. But the reality is on a movie set, when you've got special effects tied into it and there's a helicopter flying overhead and all has to happen at the same time, if the firearm malfunctions, you've just ruined the whole take. And it could take two to three to four hours to reset that. So we actually strive for more reliability on a film set than we do in the real world, which is a little bit of an odd thing. So lots of different factors, you know, cause the specific firearm. And sometimes it's pure coincidence. It's like, hey, yeah, we need a gun. Quick, grab that one. And that's what winds up being used. Can you explain um, for people exactly what it means to fire a blank? So a blank is, you know, if, if a real cartridge uh, consists of a shell case, a primer, a propellant, which is the gunpowder, and some form of projectile, which is the bullet that, that goes down range, a blank is a cartridge that consists of all those factors without the projectile. There's no bullet being launched down range. So, again, because we're kind of creating an illusion of gunfire, uh, we have to modify the gun in some way because in real simple terms, in a live cartridge, when the gunpowder goes off, pressure builds up, the pressure pushes the projectile down range, but it also pushes the slide of the gun, let's say, to the rear. If I don't have that projectile to build the pressure up behind, how do I get the gun to function on the screen? So I have to do things to the internals of the gun to create that pressure. Uh, in the military, of course, they, they put a BFA, a blank fire adapter, which is a big orange thing that goes over the muzzle of the gun, and that, that makes the gun function on blanks. But we don't have that luxury. We can't show something like that on screen. So we have to hide that BFA, that blank fire adapter, on the inside of the firearm. And so we're creating a new technology that, again, this gun wasn't designed for that. And uh, we have to, again, strive for as much as, as we can to 100% reliability. Well, and blanks are still kind of dangerous, though, right, in terms of, like, positioning of the actors and making sure that they're not too close to the end of the barrel? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of what goes into what, what's called uh, gunfight choreography. Uh, who can stand where, how close you can get, uh, different things like that. We actually have different levels of blanks. We have a, a full blank, a half blank, a quarter blank. And we, again, we swap those out on set depending upon the specific scene 
that we're in or how close someone needs to be or whether there's animals on set. In Westerns, there's always, you know, horses around. And so we have to have a different sound level to the blanks. And then a lot of that gets added in in post-production where we'll go out with the gun and fire it live and take that sound bite and then put it into the soundtrack of the film. So do you find um, like, like working with all these firearms and like essentially, you know, being on set is almost like all the prep that would go into like a range day plus a lot more. Do you find that like when you're, when you get home from work, are you like, all right, I'm glad to be like done with guns for the day or are you just as willing to like, you know what, hitting the range for an hour sounds fun. Like I'm going to go do like, is that something, does it sort of take away or add to the interest? Well, you know, everyone who's gotten into this uh, firearms in the film industry, if you will, uh, gets into it because they, you know, are enthusiastic about firearms. And we have people that come in from all walks of life. We have people from the gun world that drift into the film industry. We have prop people who decide to specialize in firearms. So we bring kind of a, an eclectic mix of people uh, together. Uh, a typical day on set can be anywhere from 12 to 16 hours. So there's not much time when you get home to, oh, let's go out to the range too and, and just kind of relax. And I think like any industry, like any job, that you get into because it was your hobby and you want to turn it into a career, uh, there is a little bit that gets lost because it becomes a job. It's work, you know. Um, you go to the range and you take three firearms out and one of them isn't working right, eh, you can still enjoy yourself with the other two. Uh, if that happens on set, that's a big problem because it's not just you and your firearm. There's, there's a crew of 250 people and they're spending a lot of money from the studio time is money and things like that so there's a lot more pressure involved uh being on set is a very very intensive uh kind of environment uh but again if, if you don't have a passion for it if it's not in your blood it's so stressful that you really wouldn't want to do it anyway so firearms is, is a big part of our life for the people that are in the firearms department uh and when we go home and of course we like anyone else, we'll relax in front of a good movie or something like that. But then we'll be watching it and we'll go like, wow, I wonder how they filmed that scene with the gun. Or, oh, yeah, they made a mistake there. Look at that. You know, ha ha. Um, stuff that maybe 95% of the viewers will never pick up on. But those are the things that we pick up on as, as firearms professionals in the film industry. I was just thinking when you said that about like all the people that sit on their couch and they're like, Pah! you know, this gun is wrong and this could never happen. And, you know, that, <laughs> hey, and that's, I think the moral of the story is give those people, give the, give the Hollywood people a break, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's kind of one of the things that we deal with a lot. And, and I will say that um, mistakes are made. Things happen. Uh, I, I get kind of upset when I do see those, you know, bloggers or, you know, people come up and say things online about, oh, those guys in Hollywood, they don't know what they're doing. And, no, we do. And we strive very hard for accuracy. But the complexity of making a film that you're making over a span of, let's say, 16 to 20 weeks, it, it, things will happen. There will be continuity issues. 
there's always reshoots. Like up to the week before the film comes out, there might be a little additional pieces that get added into it. Uh, films are not filmed in order, in chronological order necessarily. And so a gun that you see at the beginning of the movie, uh, for whatever reason, when they're doing some kind of reshoot, it might not be available. And so you have to substitute. And I think the, the key to it is, yeah, you know, there, you might see a period film and it's in 1928 and the guy's got a watch on that didn't come out till 1930. Let's face it. Does that really ruin the film? We're telling a story here. We're, we're not making <laughs> history, you know, um, when we're doing a film about a historical event, we try even harder to make sure that everything is correct. But at the end of the day, the director is telling a story. And as long as they got get their point across, then, then we did our job. And, and the perfect example is the police officer with a shotgun who's searching a building for a dangerous criminal searches the entire building and finally finds the criminal and points the shotgun and says, okay, you know, hands up and the criminal doesn't comply. And then he cocks the shotgun and goes, I really mean it. You know, you really better put your hands up. It's like, do you really think that that police officer searched the entire building without a round in the chamber? <laughs> it's a dangerous criminal, you know, we, you know, wanted for murder or whatever, but it's a dramatic point. They like that in film because it it translates to the audience as like building tension. Um, so there's there's some things that you know people in the real gun world, if you will, have to kind of adapt to that. It's still just a film, it's a movie. We're telling a story, and and you can't take it too literally. I think, um, I think a lot of this is something that the the at least from my point perspective as a viewer is that films and TV have gotten better at this rather than worse. So there's the trope that they, sure. that they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing, but like video games and TV and film have all, they're trending much more accurate than they ever were in terms of like the stuff that is used in them um, rather than less accurate. And there's obviously a few glaring exceptions, you know, there's a couple famous ones and, I remember watching kind of a B Western on Netflix a year or two ago that was um, really, really bad, but um, <laughs> that, anyways, um, but with, with, I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that one of the things that has pushed that is, is the, the educational level of the viewing audience, mm -hmm. as far as firearms and, you know, historical accuracy and things like that has gotten better and better. And so their demand for more accuracy is what pushes us to try to raise the bar uh, on a continual basis. I mean, it's an everyday type thing. Um, we have a lot, specifically right now, we have a lot of veterans coming out of the military. And if they're watching a film about, you know, the global war on terror or conflict in Iraq or Afghanistan, they've taken part in that for real and when they watch it if, if they watch it and they go oh that's kind of baloney we never had that or we didn't do this or that's not the way that's supposed to work again it kind of loses the the illusion effect it bursts that bubble and that's the difference between a good 
you know, segment of entertainment and a bad one. Uh, there's a saying in the prop world because, you know, firearms in the, in the movie industry are considered a prop. So in the prop world, there's a saying that if we do our job right in the prop department, you never really notice the props. They're kind of there and your brain just kind of accepts them. But if you do something wrong, it stands out like a sore thumb. And you walk out of the film going like, yeah, I don't know what it was, but that movie, it just, it didn't do it for me. It just, it, it wasn't a good movie. Or what was wrong with it? Ah, I don't, I don't really know. It just, it just wasn't a good movie. And it's almost like on a subconscious level that something's telling you that they didn't have that car in 1938. They didn't have that gun in, in 1865 or whatever it might be. Um, and again, that's why we, we strive for as much accuracy as we can, as much continuity uh, as we can. Uh, but again, it's a movie. And, and nowadays, the, the film industry is an international business. We travel all over the world. And, and if they decide to film a segment in L.A. and they continue the scene, let's say, in Australia, and then they come up with a new idea while they're in Australia, you can't just FedEx the gun to Australia and overnight it to them for this new scene that they invented. And what if that gun doesn't exist in Australia? And so sometimes there are things that are unavoidable uh, that do creep in, but definitely the, the educational level of the viewers is what pushes that. Uh, back in the day, if you watch some of the old, um, like Zorro or Daniel Boone uh, television shows from the 50s, they're not even the right guns, and you'll see rubber bayonets on the end of the gun just kind of flopping around, and, and you can't get away with that nowadays, you know. Um, so hopefully that does translate, though, to, to the viewer. Oh, what's the um, gun in our collection, Danny? The Springfield trap door that's a prop that we, we yeah. had Larry do something We were trying with. to decide like, if it would take, uh, I think, a five-in-one blank. And Larry, I'll let you explain what that right. is in a second. But if if the, our listeners want to know what we're talking about, I think if you go to the Wikipedia page for the John Wayne version of the Alamo, there's a really good screenshot of all these guys holding what are supposed to be flintlock muskets but if you look closely, are all actually modified Springfield trapdoors, and we have one. We have one in the collection. I'm not sure if it's one from that movie or just one from the era, but um, it's a trapdoor that's been altered to look like a flintlock. And up close, you can totally tell like this is like everything's wrong about it. But <laughs> you have to look really close, even in that movie. Um, you know, it, it takes a still from from the movie to t to see what's going on there, but. Yeah, you know, and, and one thing you got to remember is, again, because of the demand for more accuracy, let's say you're doing a Western or a Black Powder period show. Nowadays, there's entire industries that make reproductions of flip locks and cap locks and wheel locks and uh, the spread of Black Powder hunting seasons has caused a demand for a resurgence in flintlocks and stuff like that. But back in the early days of film, uh, and I say early days, but the reality is it's all the way up into the 50s and even into the 60s, those reproductions were not available. And so one of the things that they used to do was take a trapdoor Springfield, which is a modern cartridge type weapon, uh, and they would put rubber hammers and different things on it to try to make it look like a musket, like a flintlock. 
Um, and if we use camera angles and, and things like that in, in a good way, the viewing audience, it, it would be so quick on screen that you really didn't notice that, hey, Daniel Boone's walking around with a cartridge gun. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it, it basically it looks like a, a black powder musket. Um, nowadays, I mean, if you were to do like the perfect example that I love using is uh, Michael Mann's version of Last of the Mohicans, fantastic movie. Uh, you couldn't get away with that on that kind of movie. Everything is so accurate and so uh, correct. And, you know, Michael Mann himself is an avid shooter, so he's aware of firearms and things like that. You, you can't get away with that on a project today. Uh, and still have it be a successful project. But back in the day, that's all that was available. Um, as to the five-in-one that you were talking about, the five-in-one is a type of blank that it's it's kind of a one-size-fits-all kind of blank. Uh, remember that there's a lot of different cartridges that are built on the same basic case. If the length is the only difference to the cartridge, then a shorter one or a longer one, it'll fit in the gun and it'll still fire. And of course, we're not talking about semi-automatics or fully automatics. We're talking about older, like revolvers and bolt-action rifles and things like that. You also had a situation where until recently, you know, what kind of blanks were available in the market, let's say in 1930? Now, think about this. What were blanks originally invented for? They weren't invented for the movies. Blanks were invented to shoot rifle grenades off of rifles for warfare. Uh, they were used as signaling devices. So typically, the only calibers that were available in blank form were military calibers. Nowadays, of course, we, for instance, we've created our own blank company, and we manufacture blanks as needed to whatever caliber we need. But back in 1930, you, you wouldn't be able to find a let's say a 380 or a 32 caliber blank because the military didn't use those calibers. Um, so that's another reason both for using, let's say, a trapdoor Springfield because there was a blank available or creating a blank that worked for several different of these military calibers. And that's what the five-in-one is. It'll fit in a 45. It'll fit in a 44 Special. It'll fit in a 44 Magnum because uh, it's just slight alterations to the length. Um, so I also have to give a shout out for the very intelligent who might have been me, um, person that asked your Hollywood weapons, Facebook page about the siege of Jadotville, um, brand on single shot the other day. And thank you for answering that one. Yeah. Oh, that was a great question. I mean, uh, I, to be honest with you, that was, that was thanks to Dan Ram, our, uh, writer producer. I, I actually didn't really see those questions. He was kind of the moderator mm -hmm. and he, picked out the best questions that, that came in. Um, nice little film. Again, that, that much lower budget film. I don't know. Uh, I think you have to be a real kind of history buff and firearms buff to have even searched out that film to watch it. Um, and those are the kind of little things that, you know, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, they, they have a situation where a group of, of military soldiers are, are under siege and they're, uh, post-World War II, and they, they have kind of what we would call today some antiquated weaponry, one of which is a Bren light machine gun. And there's a kind of a controversy point in the movie where they go, 
hey, we got to make this long shot. Bring up, better bring up the Bren. And they kind of do this sniper shot with a light machine gun. And, and one of the reasons for that is that there's this urban legend or myth about the Bren, about how accurate it was. Well, for a light machine gun, it was accurate. Was it accurate enough to replace a sniper rifle? Nah, I don't think so. But it's a good, <laughs> a good point in the film, a gimmick or a hook, where they can use a prop uh, to highlight a specific thing in the storyline. And those are the things, like, like a Dirty Harry pistol again, one of the things even non-gun people will remember out of that movie is, oh, the Bren was an accurate gun, or Dirty Harry, that handgun is the most powerful handgun in the world. And that's really an interesting kind of feature of having props in a movie where they sometimes the prop itself takes on its own personality. The prop becomes a character in the film. And um, the interesting part is when when you make the film you can't guess which thing is going to become that iconic character. You know, when we made Vera for Firefly, it was another gun that a character needed. We didn't really know that it was going to become that popular. I would suspect that the same thing was happening, you know, on the Dirty Harry sets, um, you know, and many other uh, little gimmicks that come into the film industry and then everyone goes, oh, that's so cool. I need to have that pocket watch or that particular shotgun or, you know, whatever it may be. And I think that's cool. I think I think the only movie where it, like, a prop was intentionally a character might have been Winchester 73. Uh, well, yeah, that was that was a film that was about a specific <laughs> gun, right? You know, and, and you're right about that. Uh but, you know, oddly enough, I think that was like a story about the gun. Same thing with Carbine Williams. The, the M1 Carbine was kind of the, one of the stars of the show. But I don't think that the general public picked up on that as an icon. You know what I mean? It was like the movie was talking about it as an icon. But it, I don't think people ran out and bought a whole bunch to that gun because they saw it in the movie at that time. Nowadays, that's become a little bit more, you know, commonplace. Ooh, what does Sonny Crockett use on Miami Vice? Uh, I have to have a brand ten of my own because he used his own. <laughs> um, we, we've talked about the uh, M1 Carbine, Carbine Williams movie. <laughs> well, we talked about, we like talking about Dave Marshall Williams because, you know, Moonshine and all that good stuff. Uh, but yeah, we talked about that movie. Uh, I think he's actually, he's actually one of my favorite uh, gun inventors or designers and, and someone who's um, not as well known as names like Browning and Remington and Colt. Uh, but actually, he's contributed quite a lot to the firearms industry and firearms designs and, and things like that. So there's a couple of good books out there if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, go out and look up Carbine Williams and, and read about his, his, not just the guns that he invented, but his personal story. It's kind of an interesting <laughs> background uh, if you're into that kind of thing. I think the uh, PC Museum learned he's <laughs> colorful. He's colorful. Colorful or quirky <laughs> might, be, might be a good one. But, 
criminal? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't quite pick up on that. I said criminal. No, I, there must be static on the line or something. Actually, I didn't quite, didn't quite hear you. Uh, well, I think we've been chatting for a really long time, so I, I think one, we should probably wrap this up. Meaning that I have to do it. Oh! Oh. Sorry. Um, little background is every time we try to wrap I up the episode it because it's been going on for about the right amount of time, Danny has something else to say. I always so have good, Danny. Well, as, as the fact that he is the new curator of the Cody Firearms Museum, he has the right to ask one last question. <laughs> hey, hey. As the former curator who's now retired, I think that I have earned a lot of rights. So, but nobody listens to them. <laughs> so, final question is: Who do we have to bug? Is it you or Dan um, to use the CFM as a host for a night at the museum theme of Hollywood weapons? Uh, I will definitely uh, get Dan to. You know, Dan knows you guys as well, so I'll mention that to Dan. Uh, when I speak to him later today, that that you guys are interested in doing something like that, and uh, I'll have him get a hold of you. Me, I just you know I'm the co-host of the show. I don't have any influence, <laughs> but he he's one of the guys that actually like um, plans and strategizes, and you know is thinking ahead to to next season and things like that. So uh, I will mention that to him, and I'll have him get in touch with you. Cool. That was more of just a shot in the dark, but yeah, shot in the dark, which is another film reference, yeah. right? And if you don't know which one, go and look it up. So, uh, <laughs> but thank you for having me on. I always enjoy, uh, you know, working with with you guys. And uh, if we can ever do anything to help, feel free. You got my number. You know where to where to find yeah, me. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. It's a it's always fun chatting with you, and I think it'll be a lot of fun for our listeners. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Larry. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.